So good to be with you guys. Um, every time I preach, I, I, I get nervous that I'm going to do something embarrassing that for years I'm going to like remember. But I'll tell you the most embarrassing thing that I ever did in front of people, it was actually completely at an inappropriate time. It was at somebody's funeral. And, and I'd actually walked a journey with this particular lady in the months before she died. She died of cancer. And I actually was a really good pastor. I was close to this person. And then in the funeral, everybody's there, a huge funeral. I forget her name. <laughs> now, I, I see how far I can go, but you can't go very far doing a funeral for someone without mentioning their name. So I panic, and I say, in the middle of my message, I say, let's pray. And people are, and I just pray gobbledygook, but in the back of my mind, I'm praying another prayer. God, give me her name. Give me her name. And uh, I, I'm in such a state of panic. I, I, no, no help is given from above. I'm on my own. I, so I say, amen. And then I think, I've just got to come clean. I say, I'm so sorry to say this. I, I've forgotten her name. The shock on the faces. I, I was mortified. And they all just look at me. So I say, so, so what's her name? Nobody even thinks to answer except her daughter who goes, so, so, so. I go, sorry. <laughs> so, so. And I'm like, so, sorry. <laughs> Only on the third guy got her name. Anyway, uh, I'm glad that story is behind me now. But let me tell you an amazing thing she told me uh, just before she passed away. Uh, you know, she wanted to make the most of every opportunity. And she asked God to minister to others through her anytime he liked. She knew she had a limited time left to serve God, and she was walking through a park around the corner from our house, reveling in God's creation and presence, and she noticed this homeless man digging in a dustbin, and she feels God's Spirit whisper to her, go tell that man that I want to speak to him through the Bible. It seems like a clear enough message. Everything's clear when you're, you realize your life's about to end. Go, do it. So she walks up to the man, says as, as much, and he astonishes her by thanking her, immediately agreeing to do so. Then he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a Bible. She's surprised how quickly this is all happening. She says, where did you get that? So his response startles her all the more as he points to the dustbin. He says, I just found it in that bin. <laughs> I thought she knew, and of course she didn't. I was so moved by this. I, I got myself uh, asking myself some questions. I mean, how many Bibles in the world are sadly left unread or worse, uh, tossed out as irrelevant? See, that bin Bible was the sign of a sad story. Someone somehow had given up on the book whose God had not given up on them. Another question. How many of us are, having come to the end of our uh, resources, our options, are now ready to discover a God who speaks? I mean, as the homeless man found out, First hand, underneath all of our needs, and we've got many needs, underneath all of those is in the need for a God who has something to say to us. Another question, is there any person in any situation at all whom God's word cannot speak to? I mean, a homeless man and a woman nearing the end of her days, God's word is sufficient for both. Wherever and whenever we live, whatever season of life we're in, whatever range of experiences befall us, God's word fits in glove, hand in glove with our lives. Now, I didn't discover the Bible in a bin. I discovered it as a teenager, new believer. I went on a surf camp, I became a Christian, believed in Jesus, quickly found out that Jesus believed in the Bible. So I believe in the Bible. I get a Bible. 
and I set out on my 16-year-old journey, no real church background in the secular city of Cape Town, living in Seapoint. I knew nothing about this book. And uh, my initial escapades into it seemed to parachute me into another world entirely with long lists of strange names and outlandish cultural practices, apostles and epistles. What's that? The other day I was reading the Bible with one of my children, and he says, Dad, what's an epistle? So I said, no, that's an apostle's wife. He goes, oh, I'm only joking, Finn. <laughs> and then these wild, uh, wild commands and these weird warnings. I mean, reeling from the confusing biblical passages, trying to find some kind of bearing. I asked some of my friends who were Christians longer than me, hey, who's who? When's when? Where's where? Why is this in here? How does it all fit together? How do I find myself an epistle? And most importantly, how do I get closer to God through it? Indeed, if I can be honest, there were times when I would open up the Bible and read a portion, and I would be so confused, I'd feel further away from God for reading it. Now, as the years ticked on, uh, I, I would eventually even go on to study theology, but on the way, I would make more and more sense of the Scriptures, and slowly but surely, the strange world of the Bible became my second home and my heart language. And so awe-inspiring as its vast and intricate landscape, I've happily spent decades, week in and week out, guiding God's people deeper into the Bible, watching them make it their home too. And in all of this, I've come to see just ama how amazing Scripture is. Um, and my prayer for you is, even today, you would just get a glimpse of how amazing Scripture is. We could really preach several sermons on just on the subject of what's amazing about the Scripture. What I thought I would do is I would pull out the Bible's metaphors about itself. The Bible's metaphors about itself. i got nine of them. I'm going to fly through them. Here we go. What's so amazing about Scripture? Number one, God's Word is a stream of water. It's a stream of water, says Psalm 1. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So picture a tree planted by flowing water. Now imagine one planted in the desert. So which one is more healthy? <laughs> which one's more sturdy? Which one has more fruit? I tell you, this is the spiritual difference between a person who every day plants their life next to the river of God's Word, compared to a person, for whatever reason, doesn't. We should ponder each chapter, each verse, each story, but, but I propose that, that, that we don't only make sense of the bits of the Bible, we, we get the whole story from beginning to end as it flows from the, sea to the, from the, from the source to the sea, from uh, creation in Genesis 1 and 2, all the way to new creation in Revelation chapter 21 to 22. So if I can change the metaphor of being a tree next to the river, what about being a boat in the river? See, as we live in the story of Scripture, we're not just bystanders, but participants. Each of our small stories getting swept into that larger story. See, the Bible is the best story ever told. It includes a vast cast of real-life actors and thousands of surprising twists and turns that progress like a great tributary-fed river growing larger and larger as it goes, winding this way and that, yet all the while heading in one direction toward an epic plot-resolving climax. Like no book before or after, the Scriptures 
have a unique power to sweep us into its magnificent flow. The grandest of stories. Let's leave the shore and let it, let it take us where it's going. Number two, God's word is not only a flowing river, it's a guiding light. It's a guiding light. God has not left you in the dark about how to live. He's shown you what's real, shown you what's true, he's shown you what's best. Psalm 119 says, God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. So, so it, it, it lights up the path we tread, but more than that, it, it lights up the horizon up ahead. One of my favorite verses about the Bible, Peter the Apostle, uh, he describes the Old Testament. Uh, that's the part of the Bible written before Jesus comes. He, he, he says this, he says this about them. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I love that. You see, God's word enlightens us about life's meaning. In fact, in its very first chapter, we discover that there is a God, and this God has something to stay, say. He speaks many times over. In the first chapter of the Bible, we, we read the words, God said, let there be. God said, let there be. God is not silent. And what's the first thing he speaks into existence? Genesis 1 verse 3, let there be light. And as we read or scroll through the passages, some of us read the Bible on our phones, from beginning to end, we find a God who continues to speak, each time with similar effect, uh, bringing something out of nothing, order out of chaos. And as we read, another ray of light drives back the chaos and the confusion in our world. Now, when you get enough people in a culture reading this Bible, it has a transforming impact, just not, not just on those people, but on an entire uh, culture. Uh, I remember reading this Time Magazine article where they looked for the most uh, impacting thing that happened between 1000 AD and 2000 AD. In a thousand years, what was the most impacting single event in the history of the world? And this is what Time Magazine said. Oh, it was the printing of the Bible at Gutenberg's Press. See, it put the good book into the hands and languages of common people. Before that, it was just in the hands of the clergy. A few people who could understand it was usually in Latin. Now, the common people had it. It proved to be a catalyst that led to more subsequent and radical changes in society than any other moment in our collective history. So number three, God's word is not just a river, it's not just light, it's the breath of God. What is a voice? A voice is breath passing over the vocal cords. You can't speak breathing in. You, you speak breathing out. Now, we might think about the Bible uh, sometimes as ancient people's ideas about God. But no, all Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. See, Scripture is not just God breathing upon human writings, it's God breathing out through human writers as they wrote and continuing to breathe through their writings now. And this explains uh, what we call the unity of Scripture. You see, the Bible was written by 40 different people who lived in different centuries, different continents, different situations, and yet they harmonized in an amazing way. Athenagoras, he was born in AD 133, he said this, Moses, Isaiah, and the other prophets wrote things with which they were inspired. The Spirit making use of them as flute players 
um, breathing into a flute. And yet this picture is still not enough because it, it, it doesn't capture the variety of instruments uh, that make up the Scriptures. The Bible is, in fact, a symphony um, in which each human author is a different instrument in the d divine orchestra. I mean, one is a, a violin, another one is a horn, another a snare drum. Yet somehow, one heavenly conductor guides each of them in this harmonized unity across multiple centuries and continents. They collectively create something so wondrous and momentous that only a divine composer could have conceived of it in the first place. This explains the fact that God has breathed upon these words. He's breathed these words out. It explains the Bible's power to awaken us, to startle us to life as it were. The reason is that the author of life is present with us as we read his words, breathing new life upon us as we do so. His word is still able to do in our lives what it did in Sarah's womb, her barren womb. Romans 4 says, to give life to the dead and call into being things that were not. The Bible's words are alive. They connect us to a living God. One of the popular stories across Africa is the story of a woman who rides around on her bicycle and carries with her wherever she goes, the Bible. She's one of the few people in the village that can read, you know, is able to read when the story happens. And people ask her, there's so many books in the world. Why do you just carry that book around? And she says, well, this book is different to the others. This is the only one that can also read me. The scripture describes itself as a river, a light, the breath of God. What else is scripture? Well, number four, God's word is seed. Seed. God's word is a seed uh, which we should humbly accept as planted in our hearts. Uh, those are the words of, um, of James, the brother of Jesus. See, God's word, when we receive it, it carries new life and new possibilities in itself. When we receive God's word into our core, I love this quote by Rick Warren who wrote, purpose-driven life. He says, he says, God's words generate life, create faith, produce transformation, heal hurts, build character, transform circumstances, impart joy, uh, defeat temptation, infuse hope, release power, cleanse our minds, bring things into being, and guarantee our future forever. And what does seed need to thrive? Jesus tells a story of the farmer who sows seeds on four different kinds of soil. Now, I don't have time to look at all four types, but the fourth kind of soil is a receptive heart. Jesus says in Luke 8, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. When you hear God's word preached, when you open up God's word, is your heart open to the planting of God's Word. What else does seed need to thrive? Well, it needs rain, which leads to my next point. Number five, God's Word is rain. And what a, a cool last half a day of rain. Hey, an unusual experience. You know, I, I was so looking forward to this KZN trip because I'm freezing in Cape Town. I came to KZN and I wanted some warmth. And look, I arrived. It's got Cape Town weather. What the heck? Isaiah 55, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, I love this passage, he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
so are my thoughts than your thoughts. Hey, so if the heavens are pure, the earth is here. Is there anything that spans the gap? Well, everybody in the ancient world knew, well, rain comes from there to here. So what a beautiful picture. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, but as the rain comes down from heaven, making the earth bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower, so is my word. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for with which I sent it. See, God's words are the very means by which God's mind is made known to our minds. And heaven invades earth. And, and of course, the words of God nourish the living seed already planted in our lives. And then number six, God's word is a foundation in the storm. It's a foundation in the storm. We can't sustain the height of success or influence if it's more than the depth of our spirit. So I, I wonder if you know the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. I was talking to someone who'd lived in Dubai the other day. It's a half mile high and twice the height of the Empire State Building. And um, interestingly, Sheikh Khalifa doesn't come from Dubai. It comes from a neighboring Emirate state. So how the heck did the tallest building... The, the building was meant to be called the Burj Dubai. And it's called the Burj Khalifa. You know what happened? Dubai ran out of money. So they go to a neighboring sheikh. They say, hey, can you lend us some money? He says, sure, but call the building after me. <laughs> How's that guy? Burj Khalifa. But the secret to its stability is found underground. Before construction of even the first of its 160 floors began, workers spent a whole year digging and pouring the massive foundation that supports the tower. 110,000 tons of concrete. See, the building is safe because the foundation is solid. And when we daily read God's word, not just read it, but reflect on it, another chunk of scripture is poured into the foundation of our lives. Now, in good times, we do as well as anyone else. But when the tough times come, the storms come, well, you can tell if you were ready for it. So, I don't, sorry, I keep on getting this cuff cord in the store here. I don't need to tell you in KZN that every now and then hard times come. And soon you think, okay, we've done our hard times. Now it's all good times for me. Oh no, here's another hard time. But that's not just true of KZN, it's true of every human life. So, I don't mean to break the news to you, but I'm going to tell you the obvious. A hard time is coming. My question is, I'm not, saying, I'm not prophesying another storm or anything. I'm just saying, are you going to be ready for it? Because you can prepare. You can be pouring concrete into your life today. You see, Jesus teaches us that knowing his words and building our lives upon them is the secret to endurance in testing times and hope in the darkest of days. He says in Matthew chapter 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Much better to do that, says Jesus, than to send down our foundation into the sand of transient values, only to come, up crashing, only to come crashing down in the storms of life and in the biggest storm, future judgment. God will, you want to stand before God? Your life will be evaluated by God. 
And if you've built your life on the values of this world rather than the values of the kingdom, uh, whatever you've built is going to be showed up for what it is, built upon sand. And, and then number seven, God's word is food for our soul. It's food for our soul. See, if you, if you want to be spiritually healthy and spiritually vital, then, then you need to feed daily on God's word in the same way that if you want to be physically healthy and vital, you should be feeding on, on food and not junk food, good food. Job 23 says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily food. See, the Bible is bread for our souls. It's substantial. It sustains us. It satisfies us. Without God's word, we cannot fulfill our purpose. And interestingly, the Bible is, compares itself with uh, milk. It compares itself with meat. It compares itself with honey. And I got thinking, that sounds like a three-course meal. <laughs> Everything you need, all the nutrients you need for the, the Christ-following life are in that book. And, and in the book of in the story of the Exodus, which happens 1,300 years before Jesus comes, God led the rescued Israelites across a desert, but he supernaturally fed them. Every morning, God poured out the sweet uh, bread-like substance called manna on the ground. And each family would get up in the morning, and they'd go collect manna for the day. You know, they collected previous day manna for that day, but now they're hungry again, need more manna, go get it. And Moses preaches to the desert survivors about its meaning. He says, God fed you on manna, listen to this, so that you might know that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. God still provides manna today. Yet like the ancient Israelites, we must discover that the manna doesn't fall into our mouths. We need, we need to get up. We need to go gather it each and every day. You've got to go get it. It doesn't just come to you. Go get it every day. And, and you know what happens when you ingest uh, the Word of God? It metabolizes into the energy we need to live a God-empowered life. And, and then number eight, God's Word is a blade. God's Word is a blade. It's a military blade. It offers us protection from the onslaught of darkness and deception. Enables us to set the captives free. I love Ephesians chapter 6. Stand firm then, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I don't know if you've been following Jesus for a long time. Maybe some of you are going to start following Jesus today. But when you follow Him, you realize that there is spiritual conflict in the Christ-following life. There is the enemy of our souls Satan himself at work, bringing lies and deception into people's lives, coming against you with discouragement and distraction and intimidation. And you can either just take the beating or you can take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't rationalize with the devil. Each time the devil would say something and Jesus would say, it is written. It is written. It is written. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It doesn't just protect you. It liberates others. You become a freedom fighter when you know the Scriptures. When you know the Scriptures, God's Spirit can use you to minister to other people's lives. 
And it's not just a military sword, it's a surgical blade. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, says Hebrews chapter 4. Often when you're reading the Bible, it just feels like honey to the soul, light to the eyes. It's wonderful. You feel the energy. You feel the encouragement. You feel the insight. Sometimes you're reading the Bible, it feels like you're being exposed you're coming under the conviction of the word. It's not always a pleasant feeling. But I tell you what, when you go through those times, you let the word of God read you. It's because God's spirit is cutting out the cancers. Let him cut it out. He's doing it to free you. He'll spare you from so much pain if you go through this little bit of, of pain of, exp of being exposed to the, the power of God's word to, to call out the darkness in our lives. So, so what do we got? Scripture is this refreshing river. Can, can, you, can you hear it trickling down? It's this guiding light. Can you see it with your eyes? It's the breath of God. It's life-giving seed. It's renewing rain. It's the foundation in the storm. It's food for our soul. It's a blade. I got one more for you. I got one more for you. God's word is a cradle is a cradle. Cradle is the thing that you find a baby in. Uh, I've been in I remember going to Los Angeles once, and, and you see people walking with these like baby mangers and baby, you know, uh, what are those things called? I've only had five kids. I should, baby carriers, whatever. And you're like, oh, what's that? You look inside, and there's a dog in there. Like, yo, what the heck? No, no, no. God's word is a cradle, and in this cradle, Jesus, Jesus. John chapter 5, Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So we, 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 we don't worship the Bible itself. We worship the one whom Scripture contains. Martin Luther said, Scripture is the cradle in which Christ lays. It's possible to have all the Bible knowledge in the world. But if you think that was, that was the goal and hasn't translated into friendship and knowledge of and worship of Jesus, you missed the point. You're more caught up with the cradle than what the cradle carries. Many of us want more of Jesus in our lives, but where were, where, were you hoping on where were you hoping on finding him? You see, if you want to see him more clearly, you want to be closer to him, then we should daily and diligently explore the cradle of scriptures and each time see what they show us about Jesus. So, so the Bible is made of two testaments. The one, uh, uh, 37 books, 39 books in the Old Testament written before Jesus comes. Then there's the New Testament, 27 books after Jesus comes. And, and if you read the 27 books after Jesus comes, well, of course, you just read Jesus on every page. In fact, 23 of those books, the very first word, is, very first sentence has got the name Jesus in it. So you learn so much about Jesus in the New Testament, but then people go, hang on, I'm a bit confused. Uh, what about the Old Testament? Because how many times is the name Jesus mentioned in the Old Testament? Zero times! 
So like, where's Jesus? Well, Jesus says he's all over the place. In those 929 chapters of the Old Testament, he's all over the place. You see, as those passages, they touch upon so many themes that then connect to Jesus Christ. So, so we, read, we, we read the Old Testament, and first we ask what its human authors and its original readers uh, would have understood. But second, we look for the way the divine author intended it to be a signpost pointing towards Jesus. In Christ, we are those, and I'm quoting the Bible here, upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So the Old Testament is just filled with signposts. And on each signpost, it's the signpost to Jesus. Now, we are those who are where the signposts have pointed, Jesus. But then we go back, and we appreciate the signposts so much more. We learn about Jesus in all the scriptures that point towards him. <coughs> Jesus for example, is the true and the better Adam, the true image of God who reflects the Father's good character perfectly, and the ultimate enactor of God's good reign in the Edenization of the earth. And Jesus is the new and the better Abraham, the ultimate chosen one called by God. The difference is that Abraham once sinfully worshipped the moon before he was called. Well, Jesus, the righteous one, he made the moon. And Jesus is the new and the better Joseph, who uh, you know, forfeits his heavenly robe of glory, he's rejected by his brothers, only to rise to the right hand of power, from which he intercedes for and blesses the very brothers who cursed him, turning the tragedies and the wickedness of their lives, our lives, into something that blesses them, blesses us. And then Jesus is the Passover lamb who absorbs God's judgment, defeats our enemies, liberates us powerless sinners, turns us from slaves to free people. Slaves to free people. Jesus said, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We live in a culture that is so looking for freedom. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from enslavement. All the while, Freedom Charter. Jesus is the true and better David, the king who turns hateful rebels into loving revolutionaries and who reigns over his people for their blessing and the world's good. You see, the purpose of the written word is to allow us to discover the living word. The Bible is not mainly a book about life principles. Oh, there's so many life principles. You want to learn how work works, how relationships work, how faith works, how to make sense of the world, how to make sense of yourself, sexuality, money. So many life principles. You've got to know them. You've got to apply them. But mainly, the Bible is not a book about life principles. Mainly, the book is a book about a living person. And we are not what the book is about. He is. You know, mentioning my children, uh, sometimes they're making a puzzle and they're stuck. Mom, Dad, help us with this puzzle. We can't make sense of it. So I say the same thing. Have you looked at the cover of the puzzle? And they're, oh, we, we don't even have it. And so the bottom of the pile, you, know, you find the cover. And there's the cover. Once you see the cover, you begin to make sense of the little pieces. The cover is the best clue. If each of the 66 books of the Bible are like puzzle pieces, then when those pieces are fitted together properly, 
one main image comes to view. It's a magnificent portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he still will do. The written word introduces us to the living word. Stand up, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to pray for us.